Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Blog Talk Radio Network, wherever you download and subscribe to podcasts. Thank you so much for being here. The show is a service of speakermatch.com. That's the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a platform speaker or a meeting planner, find one another and get together at speakermatch.com as we all come out from behind COVID-19 and and start to get out in front of people. There are lots of authors, subject matter experts, and entertainers who are once again getting in front of people. And one of those is the author of the new book, Wounding Warriors, retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel uh, Gade, who joins us on the program today. And uh, Daniel, before we talk about the book, I want to talk about your background. Did you always want to be a soldier? You know, I always did, uh, Burke. Again, this is Daniel Gade, author of Wounding Warriors, uh, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. So I was born in a military family and, or not really, I mean, a patriotic family, sorry. My dad had served in Vietnam as an infantry soldier and was wounded in Vietnam. And, uh, but he was a school teacher when I was born and my mom was a school teacher as well, but uh, they were very patriotic. We were poor, but they were patriotic, patriotic. And so they, my middle name is MacArthur. Um, wow. my family, my, yeah, my family history is in the United States army. And so I knew that, uh, I wanted to serve our country and I'm glad I did. Where did you grow up? Where's home? Uh, I grew up in North Dakota of all places. Uh, that's a small state. It's, it's a large state with a small number of people. Uh, most people have never heard of North Dakota, but it's a real state in the real United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think yeah, that it was, it was great though? I mean, I grew up on a farm and, and even though we were, we were very poor, we had, you know, we had God and we had the constitution and we had each other and that was good enough. So I figure in the things that matter, we were really rich. I think you're right. You have brothers and sisters. I do. Yep. Two of each. My uh, two olders were close together and, and then I was close to them. And then there was a seven year gap and a little sister and seven more years and my little brother. So we're kind of, we're a little bit spread out, but both of my brothers are, are army veterans as well. My older brother went to West Point and he was a senior at West Point when I was a freshman there. And then my little brother later enlisted in the United States army and uh, did a tour in Iraq uh, in Oh nine ish timeframe. You, um, you grew up in the Midwest, a small town guy, grew up on a farm. I mean, it's right out of central casting. And, and you said your dad was was wounded in, in Vietnam. What do you think it is about uh, uh, middle America and those small towns that, that feeds the military? Yeah, you know, I don't I don't know. I mean, there's two arguments. Um, the one argument is that those people are close knit. They see the best of America growing up and they want to preserve that way of life. And the other argument that is, and this did not, was not the reason I joined, but some people do, is that uh, in some cases, they're, the uh, opportunities for, for growth in those places or, or for adventure in those places are, are pretty minimal. And so you see some people uh, joining to, to leave their hometown. But I did not join to leave my hometown. I joined to serve America. And when you see an older brother who's at West Point, um, that's got to be, I would think, it would make it attainable for you that you could go, man, if he can do that, I can do that. Well, yeah. And, you know, plus, like I said before, my middle name is MacArthur, of course, a very famous West Point graduate. And so, right. uh, so it was natural for me to, to head off to, to West Point. What was your, your experience like at West Point? It's a great place. You know, I, I was there as an instructor, actually, from 2011 to 2017, but uh, as a cadet from 
1993 to 1997. And, and what West Point does is takes, you know, they try to find pretty good raw material and then they, they form that raw material into, into swords for our nation's purposes, you know? And, and the way I think, and actually that goes right into the main argument of our, of, of wounding warriors is that, you know, before they begin service, every single citizen is a, you know, a productive plow. And then our, our country, you know, beats them and forms them and sharpens them into swords for our nation's purposes. And then, you know, the question that we, that we really take on head on in wounding warriors is how do you then reshape those swords back into productive plows and, and, and the failures of our, of our country to do that in the way that our veterans so deeply deserve. Daniel Gate is our guest today. His book is wounding warriors and he knows of what he speaks. Um, I, I'm hesitant to ask you about this, although I'm sure you've talked about it a million times, but can you take me uh, to that day and that time when you became a wounded warrior? Sure. Yeah. I mean, actually, uh, I don't know if you even knew this, Burke, but I've actually been wounded in combat twice. Um, so I, I deployed to Iraq in 2004 as a tank company commander and was in a place west of Baghdad called uh, Ramadi, which is a truly nasty town. Um, and uh, as a company commander, you know, your job, especially as a combat company commander, uh, your job is to go to the sound of the guns, you know, your, jo your job is to go to where the gunfire is. And so on November 10th, 2004, I was in a firefight in my tank with, uh, with a bunch of other soldiers around me. And, but I, uh, my tank was struck by a rocket propelled grenade that came off the roof of this mosque and, uh, it hit my tank and, and, uh, catastrophically killed i'll just put it that way catastrophically killed the soldier next to me uh, about two and a half three feet to my to my left his name was dennis miller and he was from LaSalle, michigan but he was struck by the rpg directly in his face and and killed instantly and uh and i was wounded mildly that day i had some shrapnel in my nose and my uh my arm uh and i think in my leg as well although not like little tiny pieces you know it looked like somebody had taken after me with a sharpened pencil and just stabbed me all over the place with this pencil. But, um, so I was wounded mildly and, and Dennis gave the ultimate sacrifice. And I, you know, I remember that night very, very vividly, uh, in part because I have a video of the incident, but in part because of, of something that happened, you know, we're headed back after he was killed. I knew he was dead. And, and, uh, I remember as we're driving down the road, I remember looking over at him laying on the floor of the tank and uh and i could see his hand and i could see his wedding ring on his hand he was 21 his wife was 19 her name is kimberly um and and i knew that i knew he was dead and i knew that his mother and his father and his wife did not know he was dead mm. and that just that just struck me and, and they found out you know, the army actually showed up and the casualty assistance team showed up at his home on November 11th, uh, which is, of course, Veterans oh, Day. Oh, wow. So, on so Veterans pretty, Day. On Veterans Day, his, his family showed up at his house. And so you, you're hurt in this horrific, uh, you know, battle, and yet you go back in there and you do it yeah, again. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So I, I was I was actually uh, what's called return to duty, which is the highest you know the easiest level of of wounding frankly um it's the it's the uh i was very mildly wounded i, I didn't spend any time in the hospital or anything 
and so the uh the next day i was back at it um and then two months two months later to the day on january 10th 2005 i was in my humvee leading a patrol uh through this rural area and it's a place where where two days before we'd gotten into gunfight and uh and killed some guys and so we were going back there to try to try to exploit the you know gains we'd made there basically and you know the enemy was obviously pretty stirred up and so i remember just we were going down this road and i remember thinking like this is a super dangerous area and then i woke up on my back in the ditch and my soldiers were treating my legs i, I lifted my head and i saw that my soldiers were treating my legs um and i remember saying are my legs okay and they said sir you're going to be fine which you know everybody who's ever seen a war movie knows that sir you're going to be fine is is really bad news because it, it means like you're probably going to die. It's not um, what you want to hear. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's definitely not what you want to hear. So, so sir, you're going to be fine is code for you're probably going to die. So anyway, um, they said, sir, you're going to be fine. And, and I'm, uh, I was in a position and, and uh, there was the guy, the right guys were around me to scoop me up off the battlefield and take me away. And so about 20 minutes after I got hurt uh, or 15 minutes, something like that, a uh, Marine Corps helicopter settling over me. And I remember that. And then they loaded me onto the helicopter on a stretcher. And I remember that. And and then the helicopter lifted off and I remember that. And then, uh, and then I was out and I woke up three weeks later at the hospital uh, at Walter Reed minus a leg um, minus my right leg to the hip. My whole abdomen was open. I had massive infections and nerve damage and a broken skull and a broken neck and all this stuff. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty, it was a pretty, pretty tough day and almost my last day for sure did you say you woke up three weeks later yeah three weeks so i got blown up january 10th and uh i woke up uh at the end of at the very end of january um january 31st or february 1st something like that because they had me in a medically induced coma i mean the the real the problem was as i explained it to my wife they're like there's no reason for him to be conscious right now you know we we need to leave him turned off so that he's not in distress and so they just kept me kept me drugged up and 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 so i was unconscious for for three weeks yeah so uh daniel gabe by the way is our guest his book is wounding warriors and uh he, he talks a lot in this book about uh, what happens to uh, our soldiers when when they wind up in veterans hospital care. Uh, and I want to talk extensively about that because you know of this firsthand in a big way. Uh, so take us there now. You're in uh, the VA hospital. You're in Walter Reed, arguably, you know, the, the pinnacle of veterans care in America. What does rehabilitation from that kind of amazing trauma look like for you? And how long does it take? Yeah, well, just really quick, a, a, a tiny point of order is that Walter Reed is actually not a veterans hospital. It's a military facility. Um, you know, the Veterans Administration has its own network of, of healthcare facilities, which which have been in the news uh, lately. They're just a couple. Of not years in ago. a good way. Not not in a good way. You know, the only bad news sells, and in general, the healthcare system in the VA is actually considered uh, by most pe- most observers to be actually pretty good. So it's not. That well, hold on a second, though. You're making yeah. an interesting point, though, Daniel, and and I think it's something that a lot of our listeners certainly I didn't know. So Walter Reed is not a part of the VA hospital system. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Walter Reed is not a VA hospital. The military has on every major base, you know, Fort Hood, Fort Benning, 
whatever uh, the military has its own facilities, uh, its own hospitals. But the but Walter Reed is not a VA hospital. It's a different. Uh, it's a it's a military hospital. So so anyway, but but the roots of of the book Wounding Warriors available for pre order on woundingwarriors.com, and I can send you a signed copy if you order it there. Um, the 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 roots of wounding warriors go back to that time in the hospital because as I'm recovering, um, and as I'm going through my surgeries, and for a while I'd have surgery every day, and then after that it was every two three days, and then after that it was basically every month, and ultimately I had about forty surgeries. Wow! But um, yeah, so as I'm going through all that, my goal was to get better and and, and get get on with my life as fast as I could. You know, Good. I. I really wanted to become fully capable and, and get back at it. But what I saw was uh, in my fellow wounding, wounded warriors is that they were not in that direction. Um, they, were, they were beginning to believe that when somebody hands you something for free, that that's a good thing. And, and I, you know, free things, free stuff is great at, at some level, right? If you, if you have some, some guy who got his legs blown off or whatever, and you give him tickets to a football game, you know, that's fine. All of that is, all of that is to the good. Um, the real problem though is, is that a lifestyle that is sustainable and from which somebody can derive value? And my answer to that question, of course, is no. And so uh, what I wanted to do is get better and get out, get back after my life and figure out what kind of dad and husband I was going to be. Um, but for a lot of guys, they just sort of fell into this mindset of, of like, my country owes me everything. And so I'm just going to sit here and, and uh, you know, take all the free stuff. And so I was observing that it troubled me, but I didn't have the, I didn't have the academic training or the policy training at that point to, to understand fully what was going on. And so uh, when I got hurt, actually, I'd been previously accepted to teach at West Point to go back as a professor. And so uh, I had a master's program lined up and I, I called them and said, Hey, can I still come? And they said, sure. And I said to the army, will you, can I stay in? And they said, sure. So a year to the day after I got blown up, I started a master's in public administration and policy. So I went through that program. And then um, at the end of that was when the famous 2007 Walter Reed scandal happened where there was uh, you know, a series of reports in the Washington Post about about the Walter Reed situation and and some real sharp critiques and and the bottom line was it caused a big time political headache for the Bush administration. So they needed somebody who had some policy training and some skin in the game, and who didn't hate President Bush to to come on staff there. And so I met all of those criteria, and so I got invited to work at the White House. And so from summer of '07 to the end of the administration, basically in August, I was a uh, White House employee working for President Bush doing wounded, wounded warrior policy and military health care and VA policy. And what I discovered then was that there's this entire ecosystem of organizations of interest groups like Disabled American Veterans and VFW and AMVETS and all of those that are deliberately making it so that as many people exit the military as as disabled veterans as possible because that's where they get their power base from and the problem there is that veterans are getting trapped in this mindset of again that they're dependent on government for everything 
And it's deeply disempowering. And I saw that up close. You know, I saw that I saw that when I'm meeting with the heads of these organizations and with members of Congress and with everybody, like, holy cow, this is really, this is really terrible. And so so then at the end of my uh, time there, I was able to return to University of Georgia to get a PhD in that same topic. And so I, I went back and got my PhD in public administration and policy. My dissertation is on veterans care, basically, and, and um, or a one aspect of it. And, and, and so I saw it. So I've seen this from the personal side. I've seen it from the high level policy side at the White House. And then I saw it you know, from the academic side and all of those things converge on one basic finding, which is that our country is, is pardon the expression, but is screwing veterans by paying them to be sick and then turning around and wondering why we have so many sick veterans. So uh, a few years ago, the, the, the VA's spending on disability benefits eclipsed the VA's spending on all of its healthcare and education and retraining combined. So let me say that again. The VA spends more money to get to keep people sick through disability payments than it does on healthcare, rehabilitation, and education combined. That's how bad wow. this is. So it's it's a huge, huge problem. And 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 what's funny is, Burke, that a lot of people know this is a problem, you know, and in, in wounding warriors, we talk to some of them. I mean, members of Congress and and uh, VA secretaries and senior VA officials, everybody knows this is a problem, but people either lack the moral courage or the political courage to just say what's true, which is, which is what I've said here. And so, and so, you know, I'm in a unique position because I have a, you know, I have a PhD in policy and I have two purple hearts and I have one leg. And so there's some things I can say due to that. Uh, situation that, that most people can't, even though every veteran basically knows that what I'm saying is true. Daniel Gate is our guest. He's a retired lieutenant colonel. Um, and, and it's amazing to me that, in, in, you know, you've written this book, Wounding Warriors, which is pretty controversial in what you have to say, but, but you kind of blew past until about 30 seconds ago, the fact that, you know, you were wounded in action twice and lost a leg in combat. As if, you know, this is a typical Tuesday on your way to, to TGI Fridays for chicken wings after work. It's a pretty big <laughs> damn deal. Uh, and yeah, so it sucked. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that, that you had, I think you said, 40 surgeries to put yourself back together again. And that you, of all people, are saying that uh, the the veterans and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but that that the the system is sort of rigged against veterans to to have them uh, come across as if they need even you know more care. They need to be uh, you know uh, turned out as as fully disabled. So you know, walk me through this because I'm sure there are people right now who are listening saying of Daniel Gate of all people should be looking for as much assistance from the government. Uh, as as he can get. So uh, tell me, and, and by the way, I should tell folks that Wounding Warriors was not only written by Daniel, but co-written by a, a former Wall Street Journal investigative reporter. So you guys did a, a deep dive into this. It's not some wonky policy book. So No, 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 no. It's very entertaining, actually. And I, I did the audio book myself. So if you if you don't want to order it on woundingwarriors.com and get a signed copy, you can go to audible.com and order a uh, order the audiobook and it'll deliver next week actually. So you talked to a lot of veterans when you were writing this thing 
And and you, of course, have observed the way it works in the VA uh, firsthand. But uh, talk to me about what these vets tell you about how the system is broken. Yeah. So so let me let me back up a little bit and say this. Let, let, I'll paint you two word pictures here. Okay. So if you have, if anybody out there has kids, right, and and you have a, let's say you have an eight-year-old kid, and your eight-year-old comes to you at 11 o'clock in the morning, and so 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning, and says, hey, can I have a candy bar? Like, no, you can't. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. We're not having candy bars at 9 o'clock in the morning. And, and why do you say that to your child? Well, because you know that that's what's best for your child. You know that, you know, that big jolt of sugar that early in the morning is not going to be a good plan. And, you know, maybe later in the day, you and your brother can split a candy bar, you know, you know but, but not, not right now. We're not doing that in the morning. Um, and the reason you tell your kid no, even though he vehemently demands that he wants a candy bar, the reason you tell him no is because it's what's best for him and because you love him. Okay. And so when we're dealing with veterans as a class, I'm not saying that they're children and that's where the analogy breaks down, but what we need to do as a society is do what's best for them, not necessarily what they want to have done or what their friends want to have done. And so, so really what, what Wounding Warriors talks about, and especially in the epilogue, which is, uh, which is a different tone than the rest of the book, because the rest of the book is a story but the epilogue is some policy recommendations, essentially. But what we talk about there is that is that we need to reskill, upskill, and transition veterans. What we owe them is a chance to reskill, upskill, and transition so that they can be productive members of society again. And so they won't become, you know, wards of the state. So they won't become dependent on those handouts. And the other, you know, the other. Um, the other sort of word picture I'd paint is that, you know, we know in, in every other realm of policy, we know that if we give benefits to people, it changes their behavior. And as long as you're okay with the way it changes their behavior, that's fine. But if, if it changes their behavior for the negative, that's not fine. So, you know, every national park has signs that say, you know, don't feed the bears. And the reason you don't feed the bears is because it makes the bears dependent on on handouts and the bears stop doing bear things, you know, they, they stop flipping over rocks and eating grubs. And instead they become the sort of bear that digs in trash cans and, and breaks open cars. Right. And that's uh -huh. not what we want. We want wild bears. We don't want tame bears. And the same thing is true of veterans. If we, if we pay them disability benefits for things that are not truly disabilities, then what we're doing is creating a class of veterans that are dependent on other people. And here's how that works. Here's how that plays out. If you make a veteran dependent on other people, what happens is if he begins to be sapped of that self-efficacy, that's that value that comes from work. So, uh, uh, you know, if you're, if you're riding on an airplane someplace, the first question somebody's going to ask you is, you know, if you're sitting next to somebody, you sit down and, you know, good morning, good morning, you know, whatever the next, and if they strike up a conversation, what's the first thing they say? They say, what do you do for a living? They don't care where right. you're going. They don't care what you're, if you have kids, they don't care what kind of car you do. They care. They care. What do you do for a living? And why is that? The reason is because men especially derive a great deal of value and social standing from their work. 
And when we pay veterans to be sick, when we pay veterans to exit the labor market and to, and to become dependent on the state, then we're robbing them of that value, the, the power that they get from being able to say, yes, I am a you know, skilled tradesman. I am a school teacher. I am a CEO. I'm whatever, you know, I'm a podcaster, right? And, and that's a real problem because then what happens is they look at their families, they look at their wives, they look at their society through the lens of dependency rather than through the lens of power and, and, and full value. One of, the, one of the people that we interviewed for Wounding Warriors is a person who, um, in the book, her name is Molly, that's a pseudonym, but at one point in, in our interviews, she said, you know, when they treat me this way, I feel like, quote, discarded government waste. And if you think about that, like, holy cow, you know, what we owe our veterans is not to turn them into discarded government waste. What we owe them is a chance to thrive on their own terms and to stand up and be powerful and be, be citizens of full standing like they've earned rather than, you know, just uh, objects of pity. Daniel Gate is our guest. The book is Wounding Warriors, and the subtitle is How Bad Policy is making veterans sicker and poorer. Um, you know, there's, there's the old joke about uh, we're here from the government and we're here to help you and you run in the other direction. It sounds like this is absolutely what you're talking about. But I want to make sure that we put a fine point on this. Are you saying that that veterans who are disabled should not receive disability benefits? I don't think that's what you're saying, but I want to hear it come out of your mouth. No, absolutely not. Of course, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that uh, we need, first off, we need significant reform to the system so that it uh, ends up, re- you know, helping people transition into lives of meaning and value and not trapping them in lives of dependency. Okay. So, so, you know, when I, when I'm talking to, when I'm talking to veterans about this, I say, look, you know, the system allows you to take disability benefits if you want, whatever, you know, like I'm, I'm not, encouraging or discouraging you. But what I would say is it's a moral choice, you know, um, and I'm a, I'm a hunter. I like, I like to hunt deer and I'm going to hunt bears in a month and it's going to be awesome. Um, I've never killed a bear, but I would really like to. So, (laughs) but, but but eating, eating, yeah, totally. But eating meat is a moral choice, right? Because in order for you to eat a meat, eat meat or a fish or whatever, you have to say my desire for that flesh is, overriding that animal's right to life, you know? So it's a moral choice. And for every veteran who's taking disability benefits, they are making a moral choice. They're making a moral claim on their fellow citizen. And the moral claim is something like this. Because I have X condition, my fellow citizen owes me Y dollars per month, right? And so what I always propose to my fellow veterans as they're leaving the service. And actually I had a buddy of mine, uh, one of my surgeons actually, who just retired uh, from the army as a Colonel. And he's a orthopedic or general surgeon one. I don't remember which vascular maybe, uh, but he's a surgeon. So he's going to, he's going to be fine. You know, he's not hurting for finances three times as much on the, on the outside as he did on the inside. But the point is he wrote me and he said, Hey, you know, I've heard you talk about disability benefits before, and they're encouraging me to apply, should I? And what I said to my, my buddy, his name is Paul. I said to Paul, 
Look, um, here's the deal. What I suggest is that you apply a, um, you do a thought experiment. And a thought experiment looks like this. Imagine yourself walking up to 10 of your fellow citizens, randomly selected, just regular citizens at church or whatever, and saying, hey, I'm a disabled veteran. And they say, thank you for your service. And you say, and my conditions are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And you list your conditions from one to N. If, if that conversation makes you uncomfortable or makes you squirm, well, guess what? What that probably means is that those claims are not legitimate. And so when I was leaving the service, when I was retiring from the army in 2017, after 25 years of service, I went to the VA and because you have to, and they said, Hey, you want to fill out your disability paperwork? And I said, sure. You know, and, and they handed me the sheet and I filled out the conditions that I was willing to claim. And it was, you know, I claimed a hip level amputation. That's a big deal. I have some right. pretty substantial scarring. My whole abdomen looks like, uh, <laughs> I joke around that it looks like somebody set it on fire and put it out with an ice pick. Like I'm, my abdomen is a mess. <laughs> um, uh, I've got some facial scarring. I've got some nerve damage in my remaining leg and my, and my hands. And so, so I was, I was willing to claim all that stuff. And so, because that's combat caused, and I don't think, you know, morally, I don't have any problem walking up to one of my fellow citizens and saying, Hey, you know, part of your tax dollars are going into my pocket every month for the rest of my life because of this amputation. You know, I, I think that they would say, okay, that's fine. And, and, and I'm okay with making that moral claim on my fellow citizen. But then the guy, the VA guy did this, and this happens a lot. And we talk about it in Wounding Warriors repeatedly. Uh, and every veteran I've ever talked to has had the same experience exactly here. The VA person says, well, you, you got to list everything. And I'm like, well, what else is there? And they're like, well, you got to list hearing loss. And I'm like, well, I don't have hearing loss. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Just put it down anyway. And they're like, you were an armor officer, right? You were a tanker. And I, yeah, I was a tanker. And they're like, you shot a lot of guns. I'm like, I did. And they're like, you got blown up sometimes. And I go, I did. They go, well, list hearing loss. And I'm like, I don't have hearing loss, dude. I'm not listing it. And that really blew the guy's mind. And then he's like, fine, fine, whatever, whatever. You don't have to list hearing loss. He's like, what about your brain injury? And I go, uh, you know, same conversation. I don't have a brain injury. He said, well, but you got knocked out. True. He said, you had a skull fracture. Okay, True. He said, you have brain injury then? And I go, well, since then, I've gotten a master's and a PhD. Uh, I worked at the White House successfully for a year. I've taught college for six years. Uh, I don't have a brain injury, you know? And he's like, oh, oh, all right, fine. But you see the point, like he was encouraging me to maximize my disabilities and to make more of those claims against my fellow citizen than, were, than I was willing to do. And I just said, no, I'm not, I'm not dude, I'm not doing that. And it really... You could tell it really upset him. I mean, this guy was a Marine Corps veteran himself. He was, uh, he had allowed himself to go a little bit and was kind of like a, a big heavy guy. And, and you could tell he was kind of pissed. Like he didn't want to, he didn't want to face that. He, he didn't want to face his own problem, which was probably that he was receiving hundred percent disability for non-combat caused conditions. So, so this is really fascinating. And something I think that those of us who did not serve, would have no idea about. You're telling me that that these intake officers or whatever the, their title is are are trying to talk lots of veterans into claiming disabilities that maybe they don't have. How do you know this isn't anecdotal? That this didn't just happen to you and a couple of other pe people? Well, great question. So part of the uh, transition assistance program is, 
is the VA claims rep shows up and invariably they say, this is a transition assistance program, sorry, is a week long program that every exiting service member has to go to. Okay. And part of the transition assistance program is when the VA claims rep shows up and says, hey, um, on this sheet, I want you to list everything that has ever been wrong with you. You know, if you sprained an ankle in basic training, claim it. If you, you know, poked your eye on a stick one time, but you're fine now, it might not be fine forever. So claim it. If you're, you know, if you sometimes lash out at your wife, uh, you know, in a way that you're ashamed of, claim it. Claim it as a, as a mental disability. So, so you, this is universal. I mean, it's 100% universal. And it's part of the VA's official curriculum, because remember, the VA is a bureaucracy. And bureaucracies get their bureaucracies are just like any other organism. Think of a think of a bureaucracy like a like a I don't know like a like an amoeba or something. What is it? What is it? What does a bureaucracy want to do? It wants to grow. It wants right. to reproduce, and it wants to increase its strength. And the way the VA grows, reproduces, and increases its strength is by having as many disabled veterans as possible. And I know that's like totally mind blowing to people who are listening to this, but uh, I'm actually an expert <laughs> and, and that's what's happening. And that's why, you know, that's why uh, if you, if you look, if you go to woundingwarriors.com and read the reviews, several of the reviews are from people like former secretary of defense, Jim Mattis, and several former secretaries of the VA who are saying, oh my gosh, you said exactly what is true here. I can't imagine how brave you must be for having done that. I mean, it's, it's really pretty remarkable. So, so it's really fun to, you know, it's, it, I'm on to an argument that everybody knows is true, but that is controversial. And so, you know, in Wounding Warriors, we really grab the, the, uh, we grab the third rail of politics with both hands on purpose. That's pretty crazy. And, and by the way, you mentioned uh, General Mattis, former United States Secretary of Defense. He says, and I'm quoting here, Wounding Warriors is an unflinching appraisal, a must read for those committed to caring for our veterans who have borne the battle. Um, look, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. That's crazy that they're trying to, to you know, uh, all of them. They're, they're trying to talk all the guys that and ladies that go through that system to claim all sorts of things that that may or may not uh, be relevant. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, in, in our remaining moments here, how do you fix that? How do you turn around something that big? And and is that even possible? Can you even make that change? Yeah, totally. So in the epilogue of Wounding Warriors, we get some policy recommendations, but but the first part of it is to break the um, to break the lies apart. And in this in in wounding warriors, we talk about this repeatedly that this whole thing is based on a foundation of lies, a foundation that you know military service makes veterans into broken, dependent, uh, you know, wards of the state, and that's a lie. What military service does is imparts value and imparts tradition and imparts. Uh, self-confidence if it's done right. right. Um, or, of course. Or if we talk about it the right way. And so we need to get back to a discussion about, about that. And then, and then we need to do things like um, stop saying that, you know, that somebody who has, I don't know, type, type two diabetes because they're 50 pounds overweight 
that that's a disability. It's not, it's a condition. It is a physical condition that is not the result of military service, but it is in fact the result of, uh, you know, obesity. And if you don't want type two diabetes, you probably should get enough exercise and keep your body mass index down properly. And then, and then you'll be fine. Um, and that's obviously a tiny over, oversimplification, but not much, you know? And those are not disabilities, those are conditions. And we need to stop labeling everything as a disability and instead uh, reserve that term for things that are truly permanently life-changing and that are the result of military service, not just loosely associated with military service. And I would have to think that if someone working for the Veterans Administration is listening to this right now, um, you got to be public enemy number one. Does that bother you? Well, you know what's funny about that, actually, Bert, is that I got an email yesterday from a senior VA official, I'll leave it at that, who said, I've heard your argument. You are 100% right. How can I help? Wow. So, so yeah, so this guy had been a, a senior official at, uh, at a veteran service organization, and then he was a, you know, a junior VA staffer, and then he worked his way all the way up, and now he's a, a member of the senior executive service, which is like the, general, the generals of the, of the VA. And he said, you're exactly right. How can I help? You know, let's get together. I want to talk, I want to talk through this argument and how can I help you? So, I mean, pretty remarkable stuff. And, and that's what I hear continually. Like once in a while, I'll have somebody, you know, I've been making the same argument for years and in Wounding Warriors, we, it reaches its crescendo. So you can pre-order at woundingwarriors.com and get a signed copy there. I would really appreciate that. Um, but, <laughs> but, but my, my, my point is that you know, I've been making this argument for a long time and universally people are saying that's exactly right. Thank you for being brave enough to say what's true. And I'm like, well, of course I say what's true. That's, that's how I, that's how I roll. That's who I am. You have a, uh, a charitable component to this uh, as well with the book um, where, where there's some give back. Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, there, there are some veterans related organizations that are doing great work and I'm partnering with a few of them to, uh, if, if, if somebody purchases the book using their code, um, that they get a, uh, that those organizations will get a donation. And the first one of those I'd like to just highlight here is a, a group called yellow ribbon fund. They do great wraparound services for seriously injured people. And so if you go to woundingwarriors.com, pre-order the book, and at checkout, it gives you a chance to put in a discount code. If you put in uh, yellow ribbon, it'll give you free shipping, and uh, I'll donate $5 of the purchase price to uh, Yellow Ribbon Fund. What, um, what should those of us who didn't serve, my father served, all my uncles served, but, but those of us who didn't serve but have a deep appreciation for guys like you that, um, uh, that did serve and, and were previously wounded, what should we say to you when we meet you? Let's say, you know, we run into Daniel Gate at a Veterans Day ceremony. What's the right thing to say? Um, well, you know, jokingly, the right thing to say is, where do I buy your book? And the answer is, <laughs> woundingwarriors.com, and I'll sell you a signed copy. I love um, that. No, but look, I mean, I, I've, veterans often make fun of the phrase, thank you for your service, um, but it's the right phrase. Right, I think thank you is the right phrase. And I've adopted this from a veteran that I know um, who says you're worth it. 
when somebody says that, he says, you're worth it. And I, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and the American people are worth it. And so what veterans need is not handouts. What veterans need is uh, a chance to reskill, upskill and transition in a way that helps them thrive. And so if you can be, if you're donating to nonprofits, you need to ask yourself, is this a handout or is this helping veterans thrive? And if you're you know, voting for people who are promoting policy, is this a handout or is this helping veterans thrive? Reskill, upskill and transition, is that right? That's right, that's right. Reskill, upskill and transition. To me, and, and again, I know nothing about nothing except how to talk in a podcast. To me, that sounds like a nonpartisan issue. That seems to be something that everyone, uh, for the most part, would be in agreement on. Am I wrong? Yeah. Uh, no, 100%. So, so this argument is deeply political, but it is not partisan because both parties have screwed this up. And this has been going on for, this is not a, a Trump problem. It's not a, uh, who's president right now, Biden problem. It's not an Obama problem. It's a it's a decade after decade after decade problem. And even when Dwight D. Eisenhower was president in the 1950s, he saw this problem back then and had a, had a blue ribbon commission put together to try to to try to solve it. So this is a problem that's been going longer than any of us have been alive, and it's going to be on all of us to solve it. And the first part about it, the first way to do that is to speak honestly about the problem and the solutions, and that's what we do in Living Warriors. Very good. Daniel Gade, retired lieutenant colonel, uh, former U.S. Senate candidate, and uh, the author of Wounding Warriors. You can pick it up uh, at the website, woundingwarriors.com, and Daniel will sign a, uh, a copy and send it your way. Hey, best of luck with the book and uh, and with getting some something good done for our veterans. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that very much, and I'll uh, look forward to uh, uh, chatting with anybody who wants to contact me through the website, woundingwarriors.com. Daniel Gate, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, the service of speakermatch.com. You see a veteran out there, tell them thanks for your service. Thank you for listening. Wherever you go, whatever you do, make it a great day. Bye, everybody. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.